It was done. Okay, all right, all right. You, rest of you procrastinators, you are not done with your shopping, right? There's only a few days left. You got to get to it. So there are some done. There are some not. Uh, we are uh, uh, really excited today uh, to be doing a special uh, Christmas service. And um, admittedly, uh, throughout the years, I have been accused of being uh, a bit of a Grinch when it comes to uh, the holidays. Any other uh, Grinches? Okay, it's okay. this is a safe place. This is a safe place to admit that you are a Grinch. That's totally fine. Um, but uh, as of late, recently, uh, that, that really has changed for me. And, and, and it really is uh, having, having kids. We have a little girl and uh, another little girl on the way. Uh, and, and what that does is it makes my little Grinch heart grow three sizes. Um, and, <laughs> and, and I start to get excited about the tree and the presents because I can see the joy on, on her face. And so I get excited about you know, climbing up in the attic and dragging down that old tree and setting it up and, and doing that with her. And, and, and those things kind of begin to uh, become a lot more fun when kids are involved and uh, when kids are in the mix. And so I begin uh, to pay a lot more attention to the Christmas season, to the holidays, and, and listening to kind of what's going on, what's happening in my heart during this time of year, what's happening in the world and in the culture. And, and again, because I've begun to pay a little bit closer attention to what's happening during this season, uh, I've noticed something. I've noticed that the world uh, and the culture is preaching a sermon during the holiday season. The world and the culture is preaching a sermon during the holiday season. Now, I would say that uh, it actually is the same sermon they preach all year long, but around the holidays, the volume of the sermon of the world uh, gets turned up. So uh, the, the world doesn't have a microphone or a stage like I do now, but they are preaching a sermon, and it comes through loud and clear um, through things like uh, TV programs and radio commercials and uh, social media and all those things, the world is preaching a message. And as soon as the pumpkins disappear, it seems like the volume of the message of the world gets turned up. And if we're paying attention, if we open up our spiritual ears and we open up our spiritual eyes, we can see uh, this message that is being preached. So what is our culture saying during this season? Here's the message, I think, and, and, and I'm gonna back it up with a little bit of evidence if you'll allow me. Here's what I think our culture is teaching us and telling us during this holiday season. The message is this. Your life is hopeless and in chaos, but we are going to fix it. You see, this season is going to be the savior for your crummy life. The world is saying we have something to hope in. Okay? That is what I believe uh, the world is saying. That's what I believe the, the message of the culture is during this holiday season. And again, it, it really kind of gets turned up louder. And, and listen, I want to back that up, okay, so, so you don't just think I'm still a Grinch and cynical, okay? So, so let me prove to you that the world is preaching this message that you are hopeless, Okay, so here are a couple of slogans um, that, that I've heard this holiday season that I wrote down. I want to share them with you and see if you come to the same conclusion I did. Okay, this is from, uh, I won't name the names of these companies. I'm sure as soon as I say them, you'll realize what companies these, these come from. Okay, so here is the first slogan that you've likely heard. Get dad what he really wants this year. Okay, so at the end of the commercial... Okay, they'll say that. The commercial's over. Get dad what he really wants this year. Okay, why are they saying that? Well, they're saying that because ultimately dad is hopeless. And if you get him a chainsaw, he'll be filled with joy, right? And hope and, and all of the meaninglessness that he feels will all be vanquished if you get him a generator, right? Or a four-wheeler because that's what he really wants. You see, dad has this empty place deep within his soul. And if you get dad what he really wants this year, then all of the hopelessness, all of the chaos that's in his life will melt away and he'll finally be filled with hope. <laughs> You see, here's how hope operates. <clears throat> hope operates with an object and an expectation, okay? So there's the object. In this case, uh, we're saying it's a chainsaw, okay? The expectation is that it will make him filled with joy. That's how hope works. So, okay, so if you say this, I hope that uh, my job pays me enough to support my family, 
Okay, what's the object? Well, the object is your job. The expectation is that it would provide for your family. That's how hope operates. And so if you listen to what's being said during this Christmas season, they're offering you an object with the expectation to fulfill the deepest longings in your heart. Here's another one. Capture the magic of Christmas, right? You guys have heard that in commercials? Capture the magic of Christmas. So there's something to getting out the tree and getting the presents up underneath there and, and getting the Christmas ham and getting the family together and, and hopefully it'll snow and, and, and all these things. And if you can get the right combination of, of tinsel and lights and, and presents and family togetherness, if you can get all of that together, it's a recipe for magic. And you can capture the magic of Christmas and ultimately the the season itself will provide you what your heart is really longing for. Capture the magic of Christmas. Uh, here is another one. Give the gift of joy, right? Give the gift. What's the object? The gift. What's the expectation? That it's going to bring you joy. So if you give your kids the Xbox 800 or whatever it is this year, I don't know. If you give them the Xbox, that's the gift. And the expectation is it will fill them with joy, meaning they'll shut up for hours and you can do whatever you want. And then you'll be filled with joy, right? It, just, just me? Okay. Um, that's fine. It's lonely up here. So that, that's what the culture is saying. Give the gift of joy. The, the gift, if you just give the right thing, right, then that will fill you with ultimately what your heart is longing for, which is hope and peace. Here's another one. I love this one. Bring the family together this year. This is, this is at the end of, uh, you know, a, a lot of uh, the commercials uh, that are for grocery stores, right? Bring the family um, together this year, right? And so most of us think, well, you really haven't met my family, have you? Um, but if we can get the family together this year, and hopefully, you know, nobody will show up drunk, and hopefully granny will stop insulting people. If we can get the family together, then there really will be satisfaction satisfaction deep within our souls. The hope is the family, right? So we hope in our family. If we could just get it and, and nothing goes wrong, then the deepest longings of our heart, that, that we can finally have hope, that we can finally have peace, all of that will be met. Here's the last slogan that our culture is preaching. Here, here's another slogan from a commercial. Savor the moment, I love that one. Savor the moment, right? Savor this one because every other moment is going to be terrible, right? It's, as soon as the, the tree is put away and, the, and all the wrapping paper is thrown away, then guess what? It's back to the same old thing. You got to go back to work and everything is terrible again. So savor this moment because it's the only thing that's going to fill you with hope because the rest of your life is terrible. This season is the only thing that offers hope. The highly paid marketers are essentially selling hope and peace. If the marketing people, if these geniuses are selling hope and peace, what does that say about us? What does that say about humanity? It is that we are essentially hopeless and are in need of peace. And if you can do the right things and get stuff in the right order, and if you can get enough presents and get the family together and get the right food and everything goes off well, then you'll finally have hope. You'll finally have peace. And the deepest longings of your soul will be met. That's the message of the culture. That's what's being preached. That's what's coming through in the Christmas special. That's what's coming through in some Christmas songs. That's what's coming through in the ads. That's what's coming through on social media. Okay, so, and as believers, we would wholeheartedly reject that, right? We, we don't believe that the deepest longings of our soul can be met with trees and packages and all of the things that come with the season. We don't believe that the deepest longings of our human soul can be met that way. So what I want to do today is I want to give you a corrective lens to view and see this season, you see, for most of us, the, the way many of us operate our homes, whether we would say this or not, we operate our homes this way. The season is the reason for the season. That's the way many of us operate. The season is the reason for the season. You know, you know the old saying? 
What's the real, you know, he's the reason for the season. Many of us would, would say that, but we operate our homes as if we do this because it's cultural tradition. This is, I mean, you gotta put up the tree, you gotta get the presents, right? Or the kids will get, you gotta go at least see one Christmas light thing somewhere, you know, or at least, you know, you just hate America if you don't do that. You know, it's, it's something that we just do. We just, the season is the reason for the season. That, that is the way many of us view it. And so today, what I hope to do by looking at this text is, is giving us a corrective lens to view the tree. That there's nothing inherently evil about Christmas trees or presents or Christmas hams or getting the family together. You should do those things. But you need to view them and see them through the proper lens. And here is how and where it begins. Ecclesiastes 3.11. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, listen to this. He has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. He has put eternity into the hearts of man. That, that is what God has done. By being made in the image and likeness of God, that's what Genesis will tell us, that we are made in the image and likeness of God. By that very virtue, we have eternity in our heart. He, he has placed it into our hearts. And so if eternity is placed into our hearts, how in the world can anything temporal really satisfy the deepest longings of our soul? How can a tree, how can presence, and anything else for that matter, if God has placed eternity in our soul, how in the world can anything fill that gap? There is a hole in man's heart that only God can fill. There is a thirst within our soul that cannot be quenched. There is a hunger that cannot be satisfied. There is a brokenness that cannot be healed by anything else other than God himself. So, the season <laughs> calls you to anticipate some type of hyper-reality. It promises what it cannot deliver. You know, well, if we all gather, then everyone will be happy. If we wake up to a white Christmas morning and everyone comes out to the new Lexus with the red bow on top and all the ladies get diamond tennis bracelets and the kid gets a pony and a Red Rider BB gun, even though he'll shoot his eye out, and dad gets a four-wheeler and a shotgun and all the tools from Home Depot, then everything will be right with the world. And that is the lie of the culture that's saying we have the right stuff to fulfill the deepest longings of your soul. The holiday makes a promise it cannot deliver. And if you pay close attention, the same false hope is being offered year round. That if you just get that promotion, then all will be right with the world and you will finally have something to hope in. You finally will have peace. And the truth is, if we're honest with ourselves, those things do work for a while, don't they? You remember when you moved into your first house? Or you remember when you moved into a new house? How excited you were? How filled with hope and joy? I love this place. And then a year, two years down the road, there's holes in the sheetrock, the baseboards look terrible, everything needs new paint, the yard's awful. You remember when you had your first kid? You remember when you got that promotion? You remember, remember your wedding day? How filled with hope you were? But the newness wore off. The shininess of it wore off. And ultimately you were left going, isn't there more? Is this all there is? And that is the human soul longing, anticipating something greater. Those things, the things that the world has to offer, simply don't last. The object, okay, if you remember how hope operates, there's an object and expectation. The object fails to meet the ultimate expectation. We always want more. Even now, if you get what you really think you want, you will grow tired of it. Listen to this. Everything underneath the tree ends up in the trash. <laughs> Everything wrapped up in those beautiful packages will ultimately one day end up on a trash heap somewhere. And ultimately, all of the things you are placing your hope in will as well. 
If it's your job, one day your company will no longer exist. If it's your marriage, one day your spouse will die. If it's your children, one day they're gonna grow up, leave your house uh, and, and do their own thing. And that will be over. So what are you this morning ultimately placing your hope in? What's your object that you're setting up to bring you ultimate fulfillment? If it's not Jesus Christ and him crucified, I promise you, friend, you will be left feeling empty and ultimately expecting something else. And deep within your soul, this question will continue to resonate. Isn't there more? Isn't there more? Because the things that you have and the things that you attain simply will not do it. And when you grow tired of it and when those things don't fulfill you and you start asking, isn't there more, what's next? Then you start looking at everyone around you. Well, maybe if I had his house, I would be fulfilled. Maybe if I had their marriage, I'd be fulfilled. Maybe if we had one more kid like they do. Or... And the list could go on and on and on. But those things simply won't fulfill. Here's the big idea today, okay? Here's the big idea. It's gonna come up on the screen. It's kind of a, I'm saying the same thing in a couple of different ways. So it's kind of a big, big idea, but here it is. The anticipation for something greater is only redeemed in the promise of Jesus. Okay, so as our heart longs for something more, as we anticipate, as we move from the next stage to the next stage, the next stage in our life, and we constantly ask, isn't there more? As you're anticipating more, those longings can only be fulfilled in Christ. Okay, you remember when you were in middle school? What did you want more than anything else? To be in high school, right? Then you got in high school. What did you want more than anything else? Well, to go to college. And then after college, what did you want? Well, then to get married and then to have children and then to have another children. You wanted to have kids and then you wanted them to leave. <laughs> and, and then after they left, then you wanted them to come back. There's always that anticipation for the next stage and what's next. But the anticipation for something greater is only redeemed in the promise of Jesus. The hope in, to hope in Christ alone is the only thing that can meet your ultimate expectation of peace. You see, there's that, that turmoil, that constant longing, that constant question of what's next? Isn't there more? If I get married, will that do it? If I have children, will that do it? If we get a bigger house, if we get a third car, if I do all the hobbies that I like to do, then we'll, there, there's that sense of unrest but peace only comes through Christ alone. All of the longings of the human heart can only be filled in Jesus. Amen? So, as you look at the nativity scene, as you see the babe in the manger, as you put the tree up, don't just see those things for what they are. Don't, don't lose what the true meaning of it is because you've come callous to it and because you come numb to it and you see it every single year and it's everywhere you go. But see, when you, when you look at that babe in the manger, see the brokenness of humanity and that it can only be filled by that babe in the manger who then grows up and goes to the cross. I mean, if, if that really sinks in on you, it changes Christmas forever. You, it's impossible to be a Grinch if you see the babe in the manger who grows up and goes to the cross and dies for your sins. It's impossible to be a Grinch. If you really see the tree, not as a thing standing in the corner of your house, decorated but if you see it as the tree that was laid upon his back, if you see these things for what they are, then Christmas really becomes the meaning of my very soul was broken and hungry and longing and that babe in the manger is the cure to my broken soul. That is the meaning of Christmas. So, as we turn to our text today, um, here's what I don't want you to think of. I don't want you to think of Linus and Peanuts, okay? Anybody? Would somebody please tell me the true meaning of Christmas? And Linus, blanket in tow, steps up to read. As we read this text, don't think of that. Don't think of this Christmas story just like you would as if it were the tale of the night before Christmas, Again, all of it, because Christmas moves so fast and there's so many elements that come into it. 
It's so easy to say, yeah, I mean, you know, in the year Caesar Augustus, Quirinius was the governor, blah, blah, blah. And there was Monarch, Kerchief, and I in my cap, and we just settled down for a long winter's nap, right? So all this, it's the same thing, right? So if you're not careful, these things can get balled into one and it can become tradition without meaning. Tradition is good. Tradition without meaning is not, okay? So as we turn to this story today, think this, the human soul is broken, my soul is broken, and there in the manger is the solution. Luke verses one through three. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria and all went to be registered each to his own town. Okay, um, who in here enjoys reading um, fiction books, fiction, okay, novels, that, that sort of thing? Okay, now, uh, if you have read or are familiar with the two greatest stories of our day, um, which would be uh, Lord of the Rings and Star Wars. If you disagree, you're wrong. Um, if you're familiar with those, <clears throat> how do those begin? H how do the writers write them? Not like that. They start this way, a long time ago in a faraway galaxy, right? They, they start once upon a time or in a land far away is how they start. That's how fairy tales start. That's how poems start. Luke here is doing something altogether different. He is planting this story firmly in historical fact. Look at it again. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus. You guys know Caesar Augustus. He was the adopted son of Julius Caesar. These are both truly historical figures that existed. Quirinius really was the governor of Syria. You can go look it up. This is all truth. This is grounded in historical fact. Those other stories don't read this way. This one reads this way because that's exactly what the great historian Luke is doing here. He is grounding the baby in the manger as fact, not as fairy tale. Now, they're calling for the whole world to be registered. That means the whole Roman world um, to come and be registered or to go through the census. Here's what's happening behind that. If you don't know, um, they're uh, basically looking for money and power. That's what governments often do. Okay. They want to get all the people together so that they can make sure they're pulling taxes from everybody and so that if they need to gather a larger army, they know how many able-bodied men they have. And so the decree goes out. I want everybody to come. We're gonna write you down so that we know we're getting taxes from you and so that we can be sure that if you're an able-bodied man and we need to go to war, we can use you. So everybody comes together. What's really interesting, what's happening here in this text is Luke is not only giving us history, but this is God-inspired history, and so something is happening underneath the text. He's showing Caesar Augustus and Quirinius as governor. Look how important these people are. Look how powerful they are. They can command something, and people from all over the Roman Empire will leave their homes and come to where they're supposed to be and do what they are told to do. You see how powerful the government is? You see how powerful uh, Caesar Augustus here is? They get things done. Verses four and five. And Joseph also went up to Galilee from the town of Nazareth to Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. There is a juxtaposition happening in this text. Huge, powerful, influential, able to command all peoples through all the land to do their bidding, Caesar Augustus. And here's Mary and Joseph. They're not rich. They're not powerful. They can't command anybody to do anything. They barely have two nickels to rub together. They're not influential. Yet here they are. The two people stated before, they were pagans, Mary and Joseph for God worshipers. The people stated before, rich, Mary and Joseph for poor. The people stated before, powerful, and Mary and Joseph are weak. And so here's what's happening. These people, Mary and Joseph, travel 
make this 100-mile trek to get to where they're supposed to go. In Bethlehem. Why? Well, because the prophecy foretold that Jesus was to be born in Bethlehem. Well, the problem is they're in Nazareth. Well, why wouldn't God just make it easier? Just, I mean, were there no other virgins in that town? He had to pull one from really far away because that was the only one? Certainly not. Why make them make the 100-mile trek? God is showing that as powerful as Caesar Augustus looks, as powerful as Quirinius looks, they are not in control at all. Yet the government is in his hand and he is in control. He can take something like a census and work it into his powerful control. Friends, let me tell you this. If you come here today and you feel powerless in any situation, know that we serve a God who is not powerless, but is powerful over all things everywhere and all times. So if you're feeling weak, if you're feeling alone, if you're feeling afraid, remember this. God made a virgin have a baby. (laughs) His hands are not tied in any way. And so the difficult situations that you may be going into with your family during this holiday season, God is not powerless. God is not out of control. Yet he has the world in his hand and everything is under control. What fills us with hope and peace is this, that we serve a God who is stronger and greater than we could ever imagine, which means we as believers in Christ who serve a God who is ultimately powerful and in control and over governments, that means us as Christians, we can live fearlessly, fearlessly. Now, So the teenage girl and her future husband, they're carrying the hope of the world on a hundred mile trek. We're hoping, okay, because the gal's just about ready to pop. Uh, It's not in the text, but we're hoping uh, maybe she's riding a beast of burden uh, through the trek. Here we go, verses six through seven. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and lied him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. So it is a hundred mile journey. They have to go on. And the time came for her to give birth. Now the city is filled. Why is the city filled? Well, because everybody that was from that place had to come back to that place so that they could be registered. So the city is absolutely filled And because of that, apparently Mary and Joe are getting there a little bit late and everybody else has all the other rooms taken up and there's no other place that they can go. And so they go to the stable. Now, this is not like the ones you see on lawns around town, okay? Those ones are very cute um, and very sterile compared to the ones that they were in. It was not a freestanding wooden structure. Why is that? Well, because lumber was very expensive. And so likely what would have happened is the inn would have been near a cave, and what would have happened is they would have had the inn, and then next to it, they would have hewn out of the rock a place for them uh, to store their animals underneath a little bit of shelter. Again, this is not a sterile environment full of nice, clean, white straw. I want you to feel the weight of what's happening here. For those of you who have had birth, uh, for the fathers in the room who uh, were in there when, when your firstborn child came into the world, how incredibly frightened you were, filled with joy, but, but yet terrified, Imagine being a hundred miles away from friends and family there to support you. Imagine ladies lying on your back amongst the dung and the filth, not knowing what's going to happen next, but believing and trusting in the Lord that he gave you a promise, clinging on to that promise that God said that this was, everything was going to be fine and I just have to trust him there. As, as Joseph's hands are covered in blood and the smell of birth and animal and dung fill the air. The God of heaven who was seated high on a throne, whose angels were circling him saying, holy, holy, holy. He stepped out of that place and came down, down, down into the place of lowliness and filth and was born. He came, he came. 
There was no place for them. Note the irony. A woman highly favored, the text tells us about Mary, and there was no room for her in the end. Jesus was to be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, and Prince of Peace, and yet he is born in the manger. The Most High became the Most Low. And as our hearts were reaching out, looking for something to hope in, as the world cries out, we feel lonely, we feel empty. Jesus comes and we say, there's no room for you. There's no room for you in my heart. There's no room for you, God, in my life because my life is filled with the world's dribble. And so he was rejected here and the world today continues to reject him. He is despised and rejected, although that is exactly what we need. It is what our heart is crying out for and longing for, but we tell him there is no more room. And so there they are in that dirty, nasty old stable, and Mary and Joseph bring the Savior of the world into this place Verses eight through nine. And in that region, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were filled with a great fear. I love how God operates in keeping with the whole theme of this text. Um, does the angel show up to the Pharisees or Caesar Augustus himself? No, he goes to the shepherds the guys who were put on the back burner, the guys who were seen as thieves and swindlers, the, the guys who shepherds in that day could not testify in a court of law because they weren't trusted. And that is exactly who the angel shows up to, okay? He chose no bigwigs. He chose people of bad reputation who are commonly called thieves and swindlers. They were shifty and not to be trusted, Okay? Again, I want you to get this picture in your mind. I'm, I'm, I'm hoping to land the reality of this story on your soul. So again, as you see it depicted in nativity scenes, the reality of it will come crashing in. Imagine, imagine you have never seen a car. Imagine you've never seen a screen uh, on a television or a phone. Uh, imagine all you've ever known is outdoors and sheep and that's it. You don't know what a Twitter is. Uh, you, you don't have Instagram. Uh, you, you haven't seen a cartoon, a movie, a film, or any of that. And all of a sudden, an angel of the Lord shows up. <laughs> Do you see that in the text? It said they were filled with fear. In, in, the, in the actual language, it says they feared a great fear. They, they, okay, angels are not the teddy bears of heaven. Th these guys are terrifying. And they show up to these shepherds and it says they were filled with fear. It was a normal night. They were doing what they normally did. They were probably gathering together sticks and brambles so that they could build up a fence to keep the wolves out, to keep the sheep uh, safe. They were getting ready to bed down for the night and all of a sudden, an angel of light, the sky is lit up and there stands this terrifying being. Verses 10 through 12. And the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring good news of great joy that will be for all the people, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find the baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. Now, it would have been normal to wrap the baby in swaddling cloths. These were peasants, and that's what they did. Just like some of you, when you get your baby, you wrap them up like a little tiny burrito. Um, that, that's what's happening here in this text. They would take strips of linen cloth, and they would wrap the appendages and then wrap them together uh, just like you would swaddle a newborn. But the difference is um, in all of Bethlehem, there's probably only going to be one baby in a manger. There were no other babies in any other mangers all throughout town. This is the only one. And so the angel tells them where to go and how to find him. Now, this is an incredible announcement, and I just want to break it down. Here's the announcement. The announcement is good news. That's what the angel says. He shows up. They're scared to death. Guys, it's okay. Don't be scared. I have good news to tell you. That's a part of the announcement. Why is it good news? For unto us. 
That's the good news. I don't know if you guys have ever heard a birth announcement. We get a lot of those around here. If you ever heard a birth announcement, here's how they usually go. Such and such baby, you know, how many ever ounces this long uh, was born unto Mr. and Mrs. So-and-so. This birth announcement is altogether different. Good news. Why is it good news? For unto us, unto you is born. You, you, this is for you. He came for you. He came to fulfill the deepest longings in your soul as your heart anticipates, isn't there more? Isn't there more? Isn't there more? He has come for you and this is good news. He's come not just to be the baby in the manger, but he has come to grow up and go to the cross and die in our place for our sins. We sing joy to the world that he came for me, not in some general way. Not, this was so hard for me growing up because it was almost like I was inoculated. I, I'd, I'd been around it so much and had seen it so many times. What's, I mean, what's Jesus doing on the cross? Well, he dies for the sins of the world. But it must land on us squarely. Does he die for the sins of the world? Absolutely. Behold, this is what John the Baptist says, behold, the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the world. And for his people, and for you, meaning... That baby in the manger, for unto us is born, that baby in the manger grows up and goes to the cross and dies for Pastor Kirk McDonald's sins, mine. He dies for your sins if you have your faith upon him. Not in some general way, but in a very particular way, he died for me, for unto us. So when I read this Christmas story, I can say, for unto Kirk, the baby is born. Now, where was he born? Well, It says very clearly, and the angel said, fear not, I bring to you good news of great joy that will be for all people for unto you is born this day in the city of David, wink, wink, the city of David, who is David? You know, King David, meaning um, the the Jewish people and God's people uh, over the whole course of their history, uh, they've had kings, but now they've been ruled by Greece and Persia, and now they're ruled by Rome. They have no king. But, but this guy is born in the city of David. Why is he including that? Because Jesus is the king. He's the baby king. Not only uh, does he say, give the place, but he also gives the title. I love this title. For unto us in the city of David, who is, here it is, Christ the Lord. That, that's Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one. That's his, that's his title. That's what's given here. Verses 13 through 14. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God. If, if, you, if you're the shepherd and you're freaked out just by one, <laughs> a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. If you have a different translation in my study this week, I believe this is the best way to render the text. Peace on earth among those with whom he is pleased. Okay, so what took one angel to say, one angel said that, it took a multitude of heavenly hosts to respond to. And they said, glory to God in the highest and peace on earth. This is amazing, amazing news. We sing, oh, holy night, and sometimes we get the picture of still and calm and serene, and that may have been true, but it might lead us to forget that Jesus came because of hostility. Jesus came to bring peace. He came to fulfill the deepest longings of our soul by bringing peace. You see, You, as a human, are a sinner, just like me. And what that does is it creates hostility and enmity between us and God. By being sinners, we are ultimately sinning against the king. We are committing treason against the king. We are hostile to God, Romans will tell us. And so someone must come and someone must bring peace between the king and his people. And that's what the baby in the manger does. Peace on earth. 
Why does there need to be peace? Well, there needs to be peace because there's been hostility. The hostility has been between you and God because you're a sinner. You have looked at the king and said, I don't like your kingdom. I don't like your ways. I want my kingdom and I want my ways. I want to view sexuality the way I want to view sexuality. I want to view alcohol the way I want to view alcohol. I want to run my family the way I want to run it. I'm going to do it my way, king. Get out of here. And because of that, there's hostility. And so someone must come to bring peace. And the only one who can bring peace is someone who can rest his hand on the shoulder of God himself and also rest his hand on the shoulder of man. Who in the world could that be? Only one. Only one can be fully God and fully man and lay his hand on the shoulder of God the Father and lay his hand on humanity and bring peace. And that is the baby in the manger who grows up and goes to the cross. Not only does this baby bring peace with us and God, but this baby in the manger brings peace between ourselves. That internal conflict can finally be laid to rest Because glory to God in the highest and peace on earth, that means peace within our souls. The struggle of asking what's next can finally be answered. The struggle of saying, God could never love me. I mean, I know what I've done in my past. God could never love me. Or looking at your sin and justifying it. Well, God understands my sin. He's given me a pass on this one over here. I mean, does anybody else, I mean, am I the only person whose soul struggles that way? I find myself one foot in one camp and one foot in the other. One foot in this camp saying, I'm horrible and God could never love me. I know what I've done in my past. And the other foot over here in this camp saying, well, I'm pretty awesome. And what little, you know, minuscule sin that I do. I mean, God gives me a pat on the head and a pass for that. I often find myself in hostility and in chaos within myself, in turmoil, going back and forth and back and forth. I'm awful. I'm terrible. No, I'm the best, right? I mean, and so God comes, the baby in the manger who grows up and goes to the cross comes to not only bring peace between us and God to end that hostility, but also to bring peace within ourselves because I can declare I am righteous and a sinner. (laughs) Um, Here is the way um, Martin Luther said it. He said it, simul justus et peccator, right? That's Latin. Here's what it means. It means simultaneously righteous and sinner. (laughs) So because we can declare that to say, I'm not righteous, but I actually am righteous because I have Christ's righteousness. It's not my righteousness at all. It's actually his. So am I a sinner? Yes. Am I righteous in the sight of God? Yes. And so it ends the hostility and it ends the turmoil within our self. I'll close with this. Um, There is hope and peace to be had. Hope is available this morning. The, The peace that is talked about in verse 14, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace. That peace is available today, this morning, right now. The big question is, is that peace for me? Okay, peace is available. Okay, well, is it available for you? Well, what's the rest of the verse say? Peace among those with whom he is pleased. Okay, so, so if you're here this morning and, and you're saying, I want the, the deepest longings of my soul to be satisfied. I want something to hope in. I want to have peace. It's available. And you have to ask yourself, is that peace for me? It is for you if God is pleased with you. Well, how can I know if God is pleased with me? Look back at verse 14 again. Glory to God in the highest. If you are giving glory to God, you can be at peace. That's how that works. You give God the glory, then you get the peace. You can't know peace unless you know the peacemaker. That's how that works. Peace only comes through glorifying God. A heart that says, I care nothing about giving God glory will never be at peace because it will always be fighting for its own kingdom instead of serving the kingdom that has already been won. (laughs) You guys should have got way more excited on that. 
Peace only comes through glorifying God. A heart that says, I care nothing about giving God glory will never be at peace because it ends up fighting for its own kingdom instead of serving the kingdom that has already been won. So, with that being said, uh, I have one application point today, uh, a couple of sub points to go with it, but, but here is what I want you to go home with today. Number one, fight the uphill battle to make Christmas all about Jesus, okay? Fight the, it's an uphill battle. There are gonna be a hundred things competing. There's gonna be bells and whistles and bows and packages and parties and family get-togethers. All of that is going to be vying for the seat, the chair, the point. All of it is gonna be fighting for it. So fight the uphill battle to make Christmas all about Jesus. It is a battle, okay? And here is the reason. Give him the glory. Don't settle for a cheap substitute, If Jesus is the only thing that can fulfill the human soul and bring peace and hope, then how silly is it to make Christmas about anything else? A couple practical ways of how, okay? These are just, jot them down or don't, okay? Again, the big idea is to fight the uphill battle and make Christmas all about Jesus. Here's the how. Create intentional times in the next couple of days to slow down. God, it's so fast-paced, isn't it? I, I was at the pavilion last night and like I needed riot gear and mace. I mean, it was, it is incredibly fast-paced and, and not just there through those insane two-lane four-way stops that nobody knows how to use. Um, maybe you guys haven't been to the pavilion. Um, but, but just added that to the schedule. I mean, especially if you come from a, a blended family or, uh, I mean, th- then you have like multiples, multiples parties to go. You gotta go to this side of the family's thing and then this side of the family's thing. And then you gotta go here and you gotta go there and you gotta go get the gifts for this. And oh, we forgot this person. We didn't get them anything. And you know, you're re-gifting. And you, um, you guys would never do that. But, <clears throat> but there's, there's an incredibly fast-paced nature that comes with the season. And so if we're going to be intentional and make it about Jesus, then we must be intentional about slowing down a little bit and meditating on who he is and what he's done. Or else you'll just see another little tiny baby laying in some straw and it won't mean anything to you unless you slow down and meditate. Meditate, slow down and meditate. Here's another way you can make it about Jesus. Start or continue practicing holiday family traditions that are distinctly Christian. Okay, distinctly Christian. Now, there are a lot of traditions during the holidays that are not distinctly Christian, and I'm not saying you should not practice those. There's nothing inherently evil about those things, okay? There's nothing wrong with that. But what I am saying is, amongst all of those other traditions, you know, we always read the night before Christmas. Okay, great, read the night before Christmas. Nobody cares. Get some traditions... Get some traditions in your family, again, that are distinctly Christian, meaning gather around the tree and read Luke 2, read what we just read. Um, Do things that are going to highlight Jesus. Get your family together um, and, and go help needy people on Christmas. Maybe go shopping with your family, not just to buy gifts for each other, but to buy gifts for people who don't have anything. And take that as a teaching opportunity to tell your kids, we're giving to the needy because ultimately we're the ones whose souls are needy and God has given to us. Create traditions in your family that are distinctly Christian and point Christ, point to Christ as the ultimate hope. Another way, especially for those of you who have kids, teach your kids the meaning of Christmas for by doing so, you will be reminded of it. Okay? This is a great, if you're gonna make it all about Jesus, teach your kids, why is, there, why is there a tree in the living room? This is weird, right? If you have a little kid, they're going, you know, my kid's like, what's that? You know, those are supposed to go out there, not in here. 
Why is there a tree in the living room? You know, and, and it's, a, it's a great teaching opportunity to be able to explain this. Why are we doing this? It's, again, it's not just tradition for tradition's sake, but it's tradition with a meaning. And we're going to explain why we have that. And so by teaching your kids that the holiday is about Jesus, you will be reminded that the holiday is about Jesus. Here's some things that we're doing around my house. We're using repeated language. Okay, we have little little girl and we're using repeated language. We're saying this. We're gonna open up presents on Jesus' birthday. Christmas is Jesus' birthday. We've been saying Jesus, I've said Jesus' birthday about 37 times. Why? Why am I doing that? Because I don't want the meaning of it to get lost. I, I'm, that's how I'm fighting the uphill battle is by using that type of repeated language. And there's tons of ways that you can do that if you have little kids. Read the Jesus Storybook Bible. This is a great resource. You can pick it up at any Christian bookstore. You can get it on Amazon. It's called the Jesus Storybook Bible. Uh, it, it's amazing, and we've been reading it every night. We've been reading the, specifically the stories, the Advent stories, through the Jesus Storybook Bible. Not only is it a great way to teach our daughter about it, but it's a reminder for us as we gather together with the family to read this story of the Advent, okay? Here's another way. Dial, listen to this, dial down the gifts and dial up the celebration, <laughs> okay? Please be reminded again, everything under the tree will ultimately end up at the dump, okay? This sets us free to dial it down a little bit, okay? Put the credit card back in your pocket, dial down the gifts. Please get your kids something for Christmas. Again, I'm not a Grinch. Um, get your kids out for Christmas, but it's okay if it's not as extravagant as you wanted it to be. Dial down the gifts, but dial up the celebration, turn on some Christmas music, and have a dance party in the living room and sing Christmas carols. That'll be awesome. And that's what your kids will remember. Not, I don't remember what I got for Christmas when I was a kid. I mean, if you ask me about my 12th Christmas, I can't tell you. But what I can tell you is about the times that we were together as a family and we had fun and laughed. That's what's important. Dial down the gifts, dial up the celebration, okay? Now, <laughs> don't let your children settle for a cheap substitute for Christmas. Make sure Jesus is the main focus. And if being Jesus-focused is a joy killer for your Christmas, you do not know my Jesus. He is here he is what you have been looking for and do not settle for anything less. If you guys would close your eyes with me, I would like to pray. And this has been my prayer for you all week long. Romans 15, 13, here's what it says. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. God, we love you. We are so grateful that you sent your son to come down, down, down off of his high and mighty place to be born in filth and dirt, in poverty, uh, to live a hard life of a first century Galilean peasant working a blue collar job, growing in stature and wisdom just like we must do. God, we are so grateful that you have come. We are so grateful that you knew the need. You knew what our soul was ultimately longing for. You knew what our heart ultimately needed. And you have come to bring that to us. You have come to give that to us. And we are forever grateful. I pray that this season, each family represented here would make you the reason for the season. They would make Jesus the vocal point of their tree, of the presence, of the dinners, of the gatherings that all would point back to Christ and him crucified. We ask all these things in the mighty and the powerful name of Jesus. What took one?